following podcast is a Jill Divine Media production. Christianity has become known for judgy people, strange words, ancient stories, confusing rules, and a members-only mindset. This is why I stayed away from the church for so long, but it's not supposed to be that way. I'm Jill Devine, a former radio personality with three tattoos, a love for a good tequila, and who's never read the entire Bible. Yet, here I am hosting a podcast about faith. The Normal Goes a Long Way podcast is your home for real conversations with real people using real language about how faith and real life intersect. Welcome to the conversation. Hey friends, this is Laura Fleetwood here, and today on the Normal Goes a Long Way podcast, we have Dr. David McDonald. I'm super excited to introduce you guys to David. He is a preacher, teacher, and lecturer in colleges and seminaries all over the world. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine. David was the first ever postdoctoral fellowship at Portland Seminary, and he continues to integrate spiritual truth with sharp social analysis as the founder of the Fasaurus Chapter House Training Center, where he trains creative pastors. David, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me. We are so excited for you to be here, and we're diving into a deep question today. Um, But before we get started talking about why did Jesus have to die, Um, I wanted to start with a more personal question for you, and that is, who is Jesus to you? You know, you are a theologian, you are very intelligent, and you probably spend a lot of intellectual time studying Jesus, but who is Jesus to you in your life? Yeah, you know, the more more I think about Jesus, the more inspired and impressed uh, I am about what, what just what kind of person he was. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. I've been a pastor for a long time. And, and so you have this, this Christian perspective on Jesus, this church perspective on Jesus, that he's, you know, God and he's God's son and he's God made flesh and he does these miracles and he has all these followers. And you kind of get the uh, sort of like the sports center highlights of who Jesus is. But over time, as I continued to study and investigate Jesus and really tell the stories of Jesus to people, you know, colloquially in conversation, I begin to remember the sayings of Jesus and in my own life sort of apply those sayings in, in times of difficulty. I realized that like, this guy was amazing, just amazing. Setting all theology aside, Jesus is the most inspiring man to have ever lived. I mean, I, I think about um, like what he did with Judaism. I mean, not, not only, you know, t- turning Judaism in some sense on its head, but all of his teachings are, are colloquial paraphrases of Old Testament Judaism. So he took this existing body of material, I mean, all these arguments, all these thoughts, and then he found ways to make them really simple, really poignant, really sticky. So, so that people like with no education, people who were from a different religious background, people who had no religious background at all, all those people could get the very best of Jewish teaching in a way that made sense to them. And as somebody who tries to do that now with Christian spirituality, that's really hard. It's really hard to take what I think of as top shelf ideas that you got to get out your little ladder and climb all the way up to get these big old dusty books, take those top shelf ideas and make them simple and plain, put them in a more accessible vernacular for people. Like that's, that's brutal. And Jesus does it with such ease and such charm. He's quite funny too. 
I mean, he has, I always imagine he's got a little twinkle in his eye and he's, he's kind of got a wink and a nudge in a lot of his interactions. And he can, he's a lightning rod. Like he got super ticked off a bunch of times. So this sort of churchy idea of Jesus as um, like a big blanket, Jesus as a great hugger, Jesus as a human teddy bear, like that's not a fair portrayal of Jesus at all. This is a, a first century Middle Eastern tradesman. Have you ever met any people who are tradesmen? They're not uh like tender. I mean, they can be, but that's not their normal demeanor. If they get into arguments with people about how things should be done, which Jesus often did, well, tradesmen can be volatile, forceful, and aggressive. And so, you know, reading Jesus as a as a carpenter, as a as a tradesman, a tecton was the the real word. You know, means craftsman or artisan or stonework or something like that. But reading him through that lens as like a you know, a handyman, a general contractor, really, really puts this this sort of uh, aggression into a lot of his exchanges. So, so you got this guy who's hyper, who's hyper aware of religious tradition, who's hyper masculine, who's, who's aggressive, who's assertive, but also really funny and really tender. And he's all of these things simultaneously. I mean, these really contradictory extremes. He's all of those things smashed into one person. And God says, "Be like this. This is a guy who's got it right." Um, follow him. And I, and the more I study him, the more I go, yeah, holy crap. Like that's exactly who I want to be. And I'm, I'm not doing great, but uh, like the more I know Jesus, the, the better I am and the happier I am um, and, and more fulfilled as a person. So, so to me, Jesus, like he's my hero. Absolutely. And the, and the more I know him, the more heroic he becomes. Oh, I love that. I love just the picture that you painted in my mind because I think we all have a different picture of Jesus. And isn't that interesting? Like we're all reading the same scripture. Um, We know we do hear different teachings and things like that. And yet I bet that each one of us has a different version in our head of what what Jesus was like. So thank you for for sharing yours. Well, well, think about it like uh, if it's okay to just tease that out a little bit. I mean, think about it um, from the perspective of a parent. You know, I got I got two kids. My, my son is 18. He's a bodybuilder and studying to be an engineer. My daughter's 15. She's a, a volleyball player and a, a CrossFit champion. And um, they both have really different impressions of me. Like like last night as a family, we, we went out for dinner, had hamburgers and, and we went bowling and horsed around, watched some TV. And I had little conversations with my daughter, little conversations with my son, conversations with my wife, conversations with all four of us. And, and when I talked to them today, they, they both have very different impressions of like what kind of mood I was in, um, what the, the little jokes meant to them and, and sort of what category of joking that was, you know, like, like my son thinks of me more as a buddy and as a peer right now, cause he's stronger than me and bigger than me. And now he's sort of feeling himself in his adult life. But my daughter still thinks of me as quite this this towering figure, um, and and when I joke around with them, you know, my daughter thinks I'm full of mischief, and and my son thinks all my humor is like you know bro humor from the locker room, and, and they both have very different impressions of last night than than my wife, who just thought I was relaxed and happy and enjoying my family and my new life, and so I don't think she remembered I made any jokes. So it's just in that one little window, you get you get evidentiary support for what you just said. That of course we're all going to have different experiences of Jesus and different impressions of Jesus, because even if we spent all the same time with Him, uh, at best we'd end up with our own version of the gospel. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John—they've got very different impressions of Jesus, um, with of course some crossover. But but I think that's that's appropriate. We all should have kind of our own um, uh, 
I think the word is relationship with Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I, why then do Christians try to make their version of Jesus the only version? You know, that's a question that I that I wrestle with a lot too. Like, oh sure, there's space. There, Jesus is large enough. He is full enough. He is holy enough. He, you know, for him to be what each individual person needs at a certain uh, moment in their life. Yeah, Philip Yancey wrote that great book, uh, The Jesus I Never Knew. Came out, gosh, maybe thirty years ago or something. But that was a really helpful book for me, and 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 making space for other people's impressions of Jesus. Um, and of course, not everybody does that. Like, not everybody has a, a version of Jesus that they want to cram down your throat or protect. But but it does make sense to me that those who are hostile and defensive, it makes sense to me why. Because because their their experience of Jesus, their understanding of Jesus, Jesus Himself in them is is so precious, and so, and so like like if somebody is going to um, change the character of my daughter and get it wrong, I, I'm going to be frustrated by that. I'm going to be offended by that. If somebody says something about my daughter that's the exact opposite of what I know to be true, and, and they're telling everyone my daughter is like this when she's really like that. I'm going to tell him to shut up. That's my daughter. And and so you think about how, how important and how meaningful Jesus is to us when, when somebody else gets it other, gets it different. And of course, when we're immature and when we're young in the faith, we think, well, maybe they, they just plan on getting it wrong or if we're, if we're dogmatic or whatever, you know, um, that, so that, that's scary uh, and hurtful. So, so of course people overreact. All right. Well, here's where we are. We're talking about Holy Week. And I think most people know the general story, right? Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He's welcomed there on Palm Sunday. And then things take a turn and go dark. And and the Jewish authorities are against him. The Roman authorities are against him. His best, one of his best friends betrays him and turns him over to be tried which ultimately results in, in his crucifixion. That's the, the short Holy Week story, but there's a much longer something going on here that God set in motion way back in the garden, right? When he knew that he was going to have to provide another way to mend this relationship between humans and the divine. That relationship was, was broken and there was a separation that occurred, and God, being the loving God that He is, wanted to restore that. And, and as Christians, we believe that Jesus was the way to that restoration. From your perspective and all of the knowledge and experience that you have, help us understand why Jesus had to die. He He could have done so much more good in the world. You know, he only had three years really of, of ministry, which is so small. And he, he had to die in the most, and not just die, but like in the most horrific, what would have been shameful way back then. Um, crucifixion was like shaming. They didn't just want to kill him. They wanted to make sure that his legacy did not go on. Right. Why did yeah. that have to happen, David? 
Um, it's a great, great question. Really, really common question. Um, but I, I want to beg the question a little bit too, um, because when we say, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Well, the 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 truth is, he, he was a a human. I mean, yeah, we we believe that he was God made flesh, but but Paul tells us in Philippians that Jesus set aside his divine privileges and he became a person. So so people have to die. Everybody's got to die. Everybody. So Jesus had to die somehow. Now maybe he could have died in a, you know in his eighties in bed with a wife and grandkids. Um, maybe he could have died um, yeah, as some sort of uh, amazing and and well celebrated poet. Um, but but no, I don't I don't think that was ever on the table. Because because Jesus, when I, when I go back and, and look at the story of Jesus' life, I mean he he grew up uh, poor. He grew up in a sort of a, a backwards town. I mean, Nazareth was a really sort of s- small town, very, very small town. Uh, only only probably maybe 30 or 40 families that would have lived there. Um, so really tiny community. We guess, we guess at most it was maybe 250 people. And in Nazareth, Jesus' family had some, some shame associated with his birth. Because remember, back then, nobody believed the story of the virgin birth. That was nonsense to them. They just thought that Jesus' mom had been, uh, you know, sleeping around. So he was this bastard-born son of a, of a woman in a religiously conservative town. And that, that would have been a, a hard place to grow up. We know that Jesus' father died early because he was unmarried. And it was really weird for somebody, for a Jewish male in the first century to be wifeless and childless. I mean, that's absolutely unheard of. And it was the father's responsibility to provide a, a wife for his son to arrange that marriage. And Jesus didn't have one. We know that, that his dad was around when he was 12, but sometime before his public ministry, his dad vanishes. So, so he's got some personal heartache, some personal shame, some personal poverty. He grows up in a kind of a crummy town. Um and then when Jesus sort of has his coming out party, uh, he's immediately met with some resistance by by the powers that be of institutional Judaism and, and sort of the, fun, the religious fundamentalists. And if you go back and you look over the course of Jesus' ministry, he never backs away from a fight, like ever, ever. If he knows that he's going to say something that makes somebody mad, he doesn't avoid saying it. He says it cleverly, oftentimes will pose it as a question, but he lays these little rhetorical traps for his opponents. And he's consistently poking holes in the established ideologies, frameworks, and, and, and conceptions of his betters. Now, when you start doing that, they're not going to be real impressed with you. I mean, multiple times they tried to kill Jesus before they were ever successful. So, so already, you know, Jesus isn't going to go quietly. Like he's not going to, you know, play nice and go along to get along. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, he was picking fights and he was picking fights often. And he was picking fights with really powerful people who had a lot to lose, who felt like their power was threatened and being exposed. And it wasn't just Jewish authorities. It was also Roman authorities. Jesus had a lot of um, interactions with uh, Roman soldiers, uh, centurions, um, he was something of a, of a hero, even to, uh, to Pontius Pilate's wife, who was, who was really struck by him. And um, you know, there, there are people in Herod's court, the who people we call the, um, the, the Herodians, the Hasmonean Empire, the pe- people that were you know, going back and forth between um, Rome and, and uh, Israel. And, and so there were all these powerful people who were 
um, placed in threat by Jesus. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, if you live like that for too long, somebody's going to take you out. Look at JFK. Look at Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, Jesus was was agitating the wrong people. And, and if it's hard for us to see that, never forget his famous temple tantrum. I mean, going into the temple and flipping over tables is a, is a, a, a very, very, very uh, uh, public and angry protest saying, in essence, everything about our religion is corrupt. So, of course, they were going to kill him. Of course. But, but I think there's even like a, a sense in which it was important that he died that way for us. Because, because Jesus' death at the hands of the Romans exposes the um, sort of the, the frailty of politics and government. I mean, the, the government felt threatened by this, this homeless preacher. What does the government do with this homeless preacher who has broken no laws? They, they kill him. So every time we get the idea that the right government is somehow going to protect us, um, we should just remember that once upon a time, the only perfect man to have ever lived was, was publicly executed by his government. That, that's the limit of, of political power. Is, politics gets it wrong. Um, but it's not just politics. Religion gets it wrong, too. You get this whole religious institution, all these, these great scholars, these great preachers, these, these great learners and decision makers. And there, and there were great ones, Gamaliel, for one. I mean, these, these people who, who recognize that, that uh, well, that Jesus, Jesus is a problem. And so what do these righteous religious leaders do with the one perfect man, the, the, the man who really understands what God intends for all people and, and for creation and for the relationships going back. What, what does religion do to somebody who gets it right? Well, religion kills him, castigates him, um, besmirches his opinion publicly. And so every time we get excited about our religion or every time we get our, you know, really excited about, about Christianity or, or, you know, the faith, um, we should be cautious. Because our allegiance isn't to a religion. Mm-hmm. Our, our allegiance is to the, the one who exposes the limits of religion. So politics and religion both are exposed in the death of Jesus. And I think that was part of God's plan. Um, and, and we could tease that out too. I mean, there's limits to relationship. A lot of us try and find our identity in our friends. But look what Jesus' friends did. You know, Judas, a close friend betrays him. Peter, a close friend, betrays him and abandons him. Uh, John Mark, one of Jesus' close friends, runs away naked when Jesus is being arrested. I mean, like, th- this is ridiculous. They all left him. It, yeah. was, it was the women who stayed. Yeah, the, the women place. stayed. The women stayed. So there's, there's just a lot that gets exposed in the, the, the death of Jesus Christ that I think is important for us to understand. Um, like, none of those things can offer real hope and reconciliation. None of those things have real power. Um, not, not our tribal culture, not our ethnic identity, not our popularity with the crowds, not, not our friendship. Uh, ultimately, all of those things are going to be exposed as, as fractured and, and, and frail and unstable. Um, so why did Jesus have to die? I think he had to die that way or chose to die that way to, to expose the limits of all these false gods. Through his death, we are miraculously saved. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the even bigger mystery is that 
his death and resurrection, and I have a question about about that too, but his death and resurrection, through that, he like takes our place. And so all the wrongs that we do that he never did, he paid the ultimate sacrifice for that. Yeah, Paul in uh, in Second Corinthians has this really cool line where he says, um, God made the one man without sin to become sin for us so that we might you know, become the righteousness of God. I just like that, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Like, that's just, that's such a beautiful, beautiful idea um, that, that I'm, I'm corrupted somehow and he's not. So he takes my corruption away and replaces it with a kind of purity. And that, that's really beautiful, I think. My question about that is, and maybe you don't know the answer, but these are just the weird things I think about. <laughs> when we, you know, we say we're saved when we believe in faith in Jesus Christ. Um, were we saved by his death or were we saved by his resurrection or both? Yeah. Um, in the Bible, the question you're asking is answered by what we call an atonement theology. Um, atonement is a word you can, you can figure out what it means by breaking it up into the smaller component words. Atonement is at one month. So how we become at one with God and, and theology is just a fancy name for how you're going to string together a bunch of ideas across a bunch of verses and have it make sense at the end. So in, in the Bible, there are 87 different atonement theologies, meaning there's a bunch of different ways to talk about how we're saved. A bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch. Say that number again, 87? 87, yeah. Um, Larry Shelton was a scholar in um, in Oregon. He retired several years ago, but he published a book out outlining sort of the, the basics of each of the 87 that he was able to identify. Um, I probably only know like eight, 10, but the, the point is um, there's a bunch of different ways to talk about it. A bunch of different ways to talk about it. and And however you split the hairs, all of those different ways, I think, um, get uh, arrive at the same place, uh, that through Jesus, we're reconciled to God. Um, now, was it through Jesus' death? Well, it dep depends on what you mean by that. Like, like, is there some sort of metaphysical calculus by which a bunch of angels in, are in heaven are, are trying to work the math to figure out if you're a Christian yet and that if you'll go to heaven? Um, that, that's, that's probably not quite how it works. But I, I like to think of it this way. I mean, for some people, the story of Jesus' brutal betrayal, murder, and, and execution, um, that's, that's how they come to faith. They go, oh my gosh, that was awful. And he did that. And he did that as a, as a demonstration of God's love for the world. Yeah, then that, I want to follow him. I am now a follower of Jesus because of his death. I, I think in that way, yeah, we're saved through his death. Or at least that person is, because because that was it was that portion of his story that was so compelling to them. Others might sit there and go, "Oh my gosh, wait a minute! You, you're telling me this guy died, and th and then several days later he wasn't dead anymore." Uh, that we've got all these eyewitness accounts, which is the most compelling evidence you can have in a non-technological society, and mm -hmm. and these eyewitness accounts are ratified over over decades by by, by hundreds and then thousands of people, and, and there's there's compelling evidence scientifically and, and sociologically that that, that 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 evidence holds. You tell me that there was that kind of miracle, then yeah, I'm in. 
I mean, if that's what God can do, if God is a resurrection God, a God who has power over death, then yeah, I'm following that God. So in, in the life of that person, then it's really the, the resurrection by, by which they're saved, because it's that portion of the story that's so compelling to them. But but from a 30,000 foot perspective, I don't know that it really matters whether we're quote unquote saved through his death and or saved through his resurrection. The, the thing that matters is, am I now at one with Christ Jesus? Am I now at one w- with God? Am I, am I, am I reconciled? Am I, am I with all that I am? Have I given myself um, to the creator and, and have evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in my life? And I think that's, that's really how salvation works big picture, regardless of how we articulate it. Well, we're, it's about time for us to wrap up and, and bring Jill on for the, the next episode. She's been taking notes about all of this. But when you think about this topic, is there anything else that you want to add that we did not cover? You've given me a lot to think about. Well, yeah. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, yeah, I think I think the one unexplored aspect today, and of course, it take a long time to get into it, but before Jesus... Um, has his final showdown with the powers that be. He gathers his disciples and he tells them, um, it's good for you that I go. I think Christianity spread so fast through the ancient world because Jesus was executed at the height of his popularity. And he had these followers, you know, the 12 and their families and the group of women and you know, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and then the 72. And he had all these followers, you know, a couple hundred followers. And he told them that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and that they would have everything they needed to do even more than he could. And, and, and when he showed up after the resurrection and, and then, you know, shot up into heaven on a cloud at the ascension, and then they went and prayed and, and waited for the Spirit, um, you know, on, on the day of Pentecost. And then they were filled with this this remarkable surge of power and authority and boldness um i think that's also why he had to die like that in that timeline i don't i don't know if those people you know like if jesus lived another 50 years maybe all the disciples would have become complacent and relied too heavily on standing right next to him maybe it would have been cumbersome for jesus to have had you know three or five thousand people shadowing his footsteps all the way across the galilean countryside i mean just think of the food supply shortage and the you know, there's there's no place for everybody to stay i mean it would have been you know socioeconomic upheaval and so maybe maybe it was good that jesus died and 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 left then so that we could pick up where he left off yeah and i think a good place for us to end is to just put this thought in the listener's mind that the same spirit that was given to his immediate followers is the same spirit that he gives to us today. So his story is still living on through us and um, as his spirit works in the world. And that is just an extraordinary, extraordinary thing to think about. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was fun. I enjoyed getting to talk to you again. It's been a a long time. I would encourage our listeners to check out David's ministry, which is the Fasaurus Chapter House in Jackson, Michigan. Um, You can go to fasauruschapterhouse.com, F-O-S-S-O-R-E-S, chapterhouse.com, and learn all about the ways that he is just 
blessing pastors, um, making a safe haven for pastors to go and explore their creative ideas, their dreams to get filled up so that they can go back into the areas where they minister filled. And that is such a needed resource. So we wish you all the blessings, David, on that ministry. And um, we look forward to talking to you again in the next episode where Jill Devine uh, just joins us and asks her follow-up questions. The people are getting screwed left, right, and center. And Jesus goes, enough, enough. This is grotesque. And he flips over the, the tables. And honestly, if you're poor, that's exactly the Jesus you're hoping for. He's like on your side. Yeah, because he knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to be exploited. He knows what it's like to have the people who have power and control use that power and control to dominate and humiliate you. And he goes, as God's representative, let's get this perfectly clear right now. Grace is free and God is here and you're not doing that anymore.